0: Last Sunday we finished off a long series in 1st and 2nd Samuel. We were in 1st and 2nd Samuel for about a year, over a year, and we get the joy this morning of beginning a new sermon series on the book of 1st Thessalonians. We're going to the New Testament after being in the Old Testament for over a year, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27, Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And So Paul penned this letter and sent it off to Thessalonica and he's commanding these believers who have gathered together in a church to sit down and we can imagine it probably in a a setting familiar to this, not exactly the same, but familiar on the Lord's Day, they'd have received this letter and they would have read the whole thing. They'd have read the whole thing together, receiving Paul's apostolic instruction. And so I've been working in First Thessalonians for five to six months, and my aim in the next ten minutes is to recite First Thessalonians to you. And so sit back and receive First Thessalonians for about 10 minutes. Let's just pray first. Oh, Father, your word is more desirable than gold, even much fine gold, and it is sweeter than the honeycomb. We believe that. And we ask that you would incline our hearts to your word now that we might receive it and that by faith as we receive it, that we would be led unto you and that we would prize you in and through the working of the word. I ask for your help. Father, would you give me a mind and a memory to remember all that I've crammed into my head? And would this benefit your people? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul Sylvanus. Love by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the holy spirit and with full conviction you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word and much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers throughout Macedonia and Achaia for the word of the Lord has not only sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know that our coming to you is not in vain." But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, Nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, so we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. For you know, brothers, how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, what you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen that they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the full measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one wrong or transgress his brother in this matter. For the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we instructed you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For the Lord has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you might walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. With the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers... But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the darkness or of the night. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, Pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Oh Father, we love your words. We love the book of First Thessalonians. You are so kind in giving us your word that we can study it and learn from it. And we ask now as we turn to study this book in the weeks and months to come that you would refresh our hearts with your love, that you would lift up our eyes to see your coming and that you would teach us how to live before you that we might experience sweet pleasure in you. And so Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Now I want to in this sermon introduce you to the letter of 1 Thessalonians. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, the influence and influence of the gospel grew and expanded at a rapid rate. The work first began in Jerusalem, as we know, and, and thousands were converted to Jesus in Jerusalem. And then like an overflowing cup, it spilt over into the near geography of Judea and Samaria. But soon the message of the gospel went even further. Gentiles, men and women, having no relationship with Israel, became followers of Jesus. And soon after that, the message about Jesus went out into the wide Roman world with the messengers of Jesus carrying this news wherever their feet could take them. And these early Christians had an eye for expansion and a zeal to multiply. They were not content to have the word about Jesus established in Jerusalem or just in Judea or Samaria. They endeavored to plant the flag of Jesus' lordship everywhere. They were following Jesus' commands. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And it is in the midst of this growth and expansion of the church that Paul penned this letter that we call 1 Thessalonians. Before I lay out to you this letter and how it works, its contents and why we need it, I want to tell you the story of how the gospel came to these people and how this letter came to be written. So Paul's trip to Thessalonica was more of a, a detour than anything else. So Paul and his ministry partners, he had Silas and Timothy and others, were moving about in familiar places. They're moving from church to church, strengthening the disciples and exhorting them in the faith. And their goal during this time was to launch a new phase of ministry into the province of Asia. They were looking to expand the church. But unexpectedly, the Holy Spirit forbade them to do this work. And instead, they received a new call through, the vision, through a vision in the night. The Apostle Paul received this vision of a man standing before him and pleading with him. It's recorded in Acts chapter 16 verse 9. The man said to Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. And with that vision, Paul needed no more instructions. He and his men set off to Macedonia. And they had their first contact really with the people in Philippi. And the Lord worked powerfully in Philippi. As Paul spoke to a group of women gathered by a river, the Lord, by his sovereign power, opened up the heart of Lydia, and she received the word of the gospel, and many more became Christians in Philippi as Paul stayed there, enough to form a church. But Paul's ministry was cut short in Philippi due to a series of extraordinary events. There was this slave girl who was annoying Paul, and he Cast out a demon and that got him in trouble. And so there's this public beating and imprisonment. And then, then he was thrown in jail. And then an earthquake happened. And then the Philippian jailer was converted. And then he was kicked out of the city of Philippi. And it's after all of this in Philippi that Paul comes to Thessalonica. So he comes to this new city bruised, beaten, shamed, excluded. But here's the thing. When Paul comes to this city, he doesn't act like a man bruised, beaten, shamed, and excluded. Rather, according to Paul's own words, we just heard them. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And so on the Sabbath, Paul went to the synagogue and he opened up his Bible and he reasoned with those who were sitting there about the Christ. And from those who were sitting there, some believed in the word of the gospel. But as we see in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul's ministry was much more fruitful among the Gentiles. Many who formed this new church were were those who were previously worshiping gods of of wood and stone and metal. They, They turned from them and they began to worship the true and living God. All of this, though, created a lot of friction in Thessalonica. So successful was Paul's ministry in the city that Jews became envious of him. And the animosity can be boiled down to some very simple realities. They did not like Paul because they loved money and they had pride in numbers and they had a desire for social standing. And every convert Paul made threatened them. So in Acts chapter 17 verses 5 through 7, we hear of what these Jews did to Paul and to the, the church The text says, "...but the Jews were jealous, and taking some rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, "...these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus." Just take that in, that's zero to 60 really fast. One moment, Paul is in the the synagogue teaching, and then in the next moment, he and all the believers are labeled as insurrectionists. One moment, Paul is carefully reasoning from the scriptures, teaching these people how all the Bible proclaims Christ. Then in the next moment, he and these believers are charged with treason against Caesar and the empire. And we see that this gospel preaching, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and there is no other, is explosive. That The the claims of Jesus are creating reactions. Life for some, indifference for others, violence even in some. And it is Paul and all of these new Christians who have to deal with the fallout of this whole situation. For Paul, it meant that he had to leave the city very quickly. His life was in danger. For the new Christians, it meant the loss of Paul. After what if Cabana, a maximum of a couple of months, or at the lowest, a, a few weeks, these brand new Christians were stripped of their leader, the one who brought the gospel to them, and they were thrown into a furnace of persecution. And so Paul and his companions left. He went on to Berea and then was sent from there to Athens. And it was in Athens that Paul who must have heard reports about what was happening in Thessalonica, he became extremely anxious about the Thessalonians. We have Paul's words, 1 Thessalonians 3.5. When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for for fear that the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul is anxious about these, these new Christians, and so out of his concern, he breaks up his missionary band of men. There's just a few of them. Such a hard decision to make. He breaks it up and he sends Timothy back to the Thessalonians that he might go there and establish and exhort them in their faith. And Timothy did this. He went and after a period of time, maybe a couple of months, we don't know, he returned to Paul, who by that time had moved on to the city of Corinth. And there Timothy found Paul and he brought the good news of faith and love at work in the Thessalonians, and Paul's heart was overjoyed with the news, and from there, in Corinth, Paul sat down, and he wrote the letter that we call First Thessalonians, to be sent back to these Christians, and so that's how the gospel came to Thessalonica, and that's how this letter came to be, so that sets us up. We can kind of understand where this letter fits into our Bibles. Now, I want to bring you into this letter and have you think about this letter. What is this letter all about? Well, we can start with this. 1 Thessalonians is, I think, the happiest letter in the whole New Testament. The joy of Paul comes through. The first three chapters are a a long thanksgiving. Paul is giving thanks again and again and again. In chapter 1 verse 2, Paul begins, we give thanks to God always for all of you. And before too long, Paul again returns to this theme. In chapter 2 verse 13, he says, and we also thank God constantly for this. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul has such joy as he considers what God is doing in the midst of these believers that he is at a loss for words, and he says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy we feel for your sake before our God. And so in these first three chapters, we find Paul so happy, and Paul wants these believers to know just how happy he is in them. There's more to this letter. There's chapters 4 and 5. And there's some areas of Christian living. There's some areas of theology that Paul needs to iron out with them. They need further instruction and that makes sense. They only had Paul for a little bit. They, they need more Christian teaching. And so in chapters 4 and 5, Paul teaches these Christians further in the faith. He covers topics really practical like sex and the coming of Jesus and how to treat your pastors and how to handle persecution and how to live with your brothers and sisters in Jesus in the midst of all of it. And so we see in this letter, this letter is a matter of joy in God for what he's doing in people, and it's a matter of instructing disciples of Jesus further in the faith. And as we look at these chapters, these five chapters, I think there are three burdens that we can identify in this letter, and I want to point them out to you. The first burden of Paul is this, that these Thessalonians would be refreshed by the love of God. So Paul is writing this letter, desiring that through this letter, these people would be refreshed by the love of God. And so Paul begins this work right away. Chapter 1, verse 4, he calls these people what? loved by God. According to Paul, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the only God, the true and living God, has set his heart upon these believers in this city. And what Paul does throughout this letter is he, he expounds the love of God to these believers. And so this phrase, loved by God, is accompanied with a host of glorious connections. And Paul explains, what does it mean to be loved by God? Paul tells us it means that God has taken action for these Thessalonians, refusing that they would be, re- be destroyed in judgment. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. What does it mean for God to love these Thessalonians? It means that God has changed their hearts He's given them a love and a desire for the word about Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It means that God is working in their midst for their good, producing in them fruits, spiritual fruit. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It means that God is working to make these people holy and acceptable and pleasing to him. Or another way to put it, God is working to make these loved people lovely. Chapter 5, verse 23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It means that God has given his very self to them. God loves them. How do we know this? God has communicated himself to these believers. Chapter 4, verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It means that God is going to keep these Thessalonians and not depart from them or ever turn away from them. Chapter 5 verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. And so as we study this letter, we're going to find Paul's burden. He is burdened that these believers would be refreshed by the love of God. And all the parts of this letter connect with that burden in Paul's heart. Second burden, Paul desires that these Thessalonians would set their eyes upon the coming of God. He desires in this letter to come to them and lift up their perspective so that they would see the coming of God. So we think about this for a bit. Pain gets our attention. If your leg hurts, what do you think about? You think about your leg. If your neck hurts, You think about your neck. If your head hurts, you've got a headache, you think about your head. Pain gets our attention. And if pain is bad enough, it occupies all of your waking thoughts. It's all you can think about. You think about your pain and it begins to consume you. So let's think about the Thessalonians. Their suffering was considerable. So considerable that Paul grew anxious about their faith, fearing that because of the intensity of the persecution and through the temptations of Satan, that they might have turned away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and walked away from it all. And I think it's reasonable, we don't know all that was going on, to assume that the suffering the Thessalonians were experiencing was comprehensive, meaning it involved their finances. They were losing money because of Jesus. Their bodies were getting hurt because of Jesus, and also their emotions. The whole package was in trouble. So thinking about it, they were in pain. Surely they were thinking about it, and the danger was that they would be consumed by all the pain of following Jesus. So Paul's gonna pastor these people and Paul's pastoral move in this letter is to redirect their attention so that their faith might not be consumed by their suffering. And undergirding Paul's pastoring here is a knowledge that faith cannot last through trials unless it is constantly fueled by a future hope. And that future hope to to fuel you, to be of any use, has to be defined and articulated. It is something you can actually grab onto and, and hold with your hands. Even more, if this is to work, this future hope has to have power. It has to be able to influence your soul by outweighing the present circumstances of your life. And as Paul considers their situation and what they need to survive it, there is only one item that fits the bill. An item that is weighty. An item that you can hold onto. An item that can constantly fuel faith. And it's this. God is coming. He's coming. And Paul devotes a fair bit of time, in fact, the whole letter to develop this theme for these Christians. And here's a brief sketch of what God means, of what Paul means about the coming of God. First of all, the coming of God will be cataclysmic. The created warder is going to be overwhelmed by a great flood of God's wrath as he pours out righteous fury upon all those who rebel against him. Paul, with great sobriety, warns in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But there's more to this vision of the coming of God. Those who belong to Jesus, those bound to Jesus by faith, will be saved in that day. Jesus himself will be their shield, protecting them from all divine wrath. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul tells us the hope of the gospel for the coming judgment. Paul says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So Jesus' death in the past now shields us from judgment in the future. And so great will this be salvation that Jesus brings, that even death, the very curse of sin, will be removed from God's people once and for all. Paul, with great joy, shouts the news. He says in chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the, the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And it gets even better for Paul, because the end of all things for those who cling to Jesus by faith and follow Jesus' commandments day by day will be this, life never ending with the Son of God face to face. Chapter 4, verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and catch this, and so we will always be with the Lord. We'll always be with the Lord. And so all of this instruction that Paul gives, wrath, salvation, resurrection, the coming of Jesus is what? It's fuel for faith. Paul is dealing with the hearts of the Thessalonians he sees what's going on and he's, he's, he's putting these promises into their hearts. He's lodging them in there, one promise after another, after another, that their, that their faith might be fueled and that they could grab onto something sure and that they could endure by looking to this. God is coming for you, dear church. He is, and it's your salvation. So Paul is burdened that they would lift up their eyes to see the coming of God. And Paul has one more burden, and it's this, that these Thessalonians would live to please God. That These Thessalonians would live to please God. And so we see in this letter that Paul is concerned how these people live. Practical instructions abound in the letter, one instruction after another, after yet another. Sometimes it's just rapid fire of instructions. We ask, well, why does Paul give all of these instructions? Well, he does it not because he's a meddling mother who can't leave these Thessalonians alone, but because he desires that these Christians would live a life that pleases God and that they would experience in a reciprocal fashion the pleasure of walking before God in obedience. So according to Paul, Christian obedience, following the commands of Jesus, delights God, makes God happy. Paul says this in chapter four, verse one. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. It's possible to please God with how you live. And this delight of pleasing God brings pleasure to the Christian. And this pleasure comes as light upon the path that brings with it assurance and confidence in the Lord that you belong to him and that God belongs to you in the covenant, However, at the same time, disobedience displeases God. It creates a strangeness between the Lord and the Christian. Just think of a husband and a wife. When there's there's a spat, it creates a a strangeness between a husband and a wife. And that happens between the Lord and his people. Darkness clouds one's path, and it seems that God is far away. Our assurance and confidence is shaken. And and Paul warns against this in chapter 5, verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. We see here that Paul is laboring that these men and women, new in the faith, would live to please God, and as a result, that they would live in the pleasure of God. We ask, well, what, what does that look like? For Paul, it's super practical. It looks like respecting your pastors and doing good those to, the, to those who don't deserve it. It looks like being patient with those who irritate you and helping those who can't repay you and encouraging those who are weary and worn and warning those who are lazy and not moving. It looks like rejoicing when you would rather complain and grumble about your life and laboring for peace when you would rather pick a fight and, and scrum. It's a matter of saying no to yourself when you would like to desire the lusts of the flesh. It looks like working hard when you'd rather slough off and be lazy. It is a matter of setting your heart upon God and the good of others and not on the praise and adulation of men. It is a matter of prizing the gospel of Jesus Christ and not money or riches. It is a matter of clinging to the gospel of Jesus even when it costs you everything. It's really practical for Paul and he unfolds this way of pleasing God and he does it throughout the letter, command after command. He even does it by example. Look at how I'm living. What happens is that the heart of Paul comes through in all of these instructions. Do you see what Paul wants? He doesn't want these believers wandering far from God and walking in darkness and disobedience. He wants them living close to God that they might experience the light and pleasure of God and that they would be filled with confidence and assurance that they are God's people. That they might have fellowship with God himself through his Spirit. So I want to close after all of that. We've got the letter in front of us. We understand how the gospel came to the Thessalonians and how they came to believe and how this letter even came to them. Now we've got an idea of what this letter is about and how it holds together and the burdens of Paul operating through and in it. Now we ask, well, what does this have for us? Why do we need this letter? There's so many reasons why we need this letter. I could come up with 10 or 15 or 20, but... Here are three reasons. First reason is this, we need refreshment. We need refreshment. Our hearts grow so weary and so tired and so dull and so drowsy and so discouraged and so despondent and it grows this way so quickly in our lives. Do you feel these things? I feel these things in this last week of living being drowsy and being discouraged and growing weary. Do you you feel it? But what this heart does is it opens up wide to us the heart of God for us in Jesus. And it's only when we see the heart of God for us in Jesus that we find refreshment. Paul is leading us to a fountain of life. And if we come to this letter looking for life, we're gonna find it. So brothers and sisters, come to this letter expecting to find refreshment. Because the love of God is in this letter for you. Second reason why we need this letter is because we need hope. We need hope. We need lots of hope. Brothers and sisters, hope is not making it to the weekend after a long week of work. That's not hope. That won't that won't make your life work. Hope is not a a vacation, a holiday after a season of hard and grueling work. That isn't hope. Hope isn't retirement after a long career of working hard. That's not hope. All of these things in comparison with the hope held out to us in the book of 1 Thessalonians pale. And what Paul does in this letter is he gives us a God-centered vision of the future. And we need every single line of this letter to exert its force so that we will not be deluded by shallow and fragile and empty things that take hold of our imaginations. These, these empty things just take hold of us, and we start living for them as if they were going to satisfy us. But Paul won't let that happen if we attend to his letter. Because Paul again and again and again says this, God is coming. That's your hope. You better hope in him. And So brothers and sisters, come to this letter expecting to be trained in how to wait for Jesus, how to wait for him, how to hope in him. And third, last reason, we need clarity. We need clarity about our lives. What does God want from me? What's the will of God for my life? What am I supposed to be doing in this world? Well, Paul tells us, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul tells you, he's going to tell you exactly what you need to be doing with your life. Exactly. And we need this, especially in our times. It's dark and it's confusing in our culture. But if we give ourselves to this letter, we will find the will of God. And then it will be our work to plant our feet upon the will of God and do it and follow it. So brothers and sisters, come to this letter expecting to learn the will of God for your life. Let's give thanks. Well, oh, Father, we give thanks for this letter. It is such a good gift that we get to work through it in these next weeks and months. We're so thankful for the burdens of Paul, that the people of God would be refreshed, that the people of God would set their hope upon God, that the people of God would please you. And so we pray as we look ahead to the weeks and months to come that all of these desires would be fulfilled among us. We pray that your word would do its work. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.